and welcome to episode 62 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is going to be one of our galactic mailbag editions, and I'm Chris. Joining me, as usual, is Shane, and we are amateur astronomers. What that means is that we just do astronomy for the fun of it, and this podcast is one of the ways that we share that fun uh, with everybody out there who's also interested in astronomy. Shane, did you know this podcast will drop on election day? <laughs> I assume that's the, the U.S. election day. The U.S. election, yes. No, actually, you know, I didn't know that. Um, we, we had our recent provincial election. We're having an upcoming civil election. I guess, I guess it's election season. <laughs> I guess so. I guess. So. Well, I, I don't think we'll trump the U.S. election, though. <laughs> Boo! That <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds like there might be a couple days sort of sort of in flux. I know we did the mail-in ballots uh, here in Saskatchewan, and they they took a while uh, to count those. So uh, I guess uh, maybe we'll just be uh, be helping people sort of bide in their time. Oh, keep, while they wait keep them going. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's a good thing we don't do a political podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Trudeau, Trudeau. Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So did you get out observing this week? Uh, very little. Um, it seems like we've had a real bad stretch of weather here lately with wind and, and cloud and snow and rain. Um, but locusts. I did have a... Oh, sorry? I said locusts. Locusts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I did have a short session of about half an hour uh, with Mars. It was... Uh, it was cloudy, but not cloudy enough to completely block Mars out of my, you know, out of the ability to start seeing some detail. Yeah. Um, so uh, as usual, um, I was using my 76 millimeter Takahashi, but unusually I had removed the Q extender from it. So that Q extender, I think is 1.7 times. Yep. And um, I just wanted to try um, the telescope in its native configuration, but also... I have that TMB Barlow uh, that's 1.8 times. So oh, yeah. basically, so that this, should give you pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Now the thing with that TMB Barlow is it it's kind of infamous for requiring an awful lot of in focus travel. Um, mm. So it doesn't actually work in a lot of telescopes. Mm -hmm. And when I had the Q extender in, I didn't have enough in focus travel to be mm. able to use the Barlow. Um, but anyway, removing the Q extender, the TMB Barlow works really, really well. And wow. what I like about that is, um, you know, I basically have the same magnification as the Q extender, but it's just a lot easier to implement into the optical path. Um, yep. Because as you know, Chris, that Q extender, I have to unscrew kind of the middle of the optical tube. It's threaded. So you unscrew that then you screw in this big uh, Q extender and then you screw on like the focuser end of it. And then you're done, yeah. um, which is not something you're going to do in, at night while observing. <laughs> um, so, I've done it once. Oh, you're a crazy man. You were there. Yeah, it's not fun at all. Yeah, to do that. yeah. So, yeah, anyway, the Barlow worked very well. Um, the quality of it seemed to be outstanding. Um, so it really follows, you know, what I've read, that it's, um, you know, pretty much invisible in the optical path. Although... Because it was a little bit cloudy, it's hard to give it a full sort of judgment. Um, but what I did see on Mars was, um, I think it was seeing Bosporos Planum. Okay. Um, and Solus Planum, like kind of like a little darkish band along, you know, more in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really about it. Uh, I think I was seeing maybe just a slight glimpse of that Southern Polar Cap, but I wasn't really confident in, in that observation. Mm -hmm. um it you know to be perfectly honest if it was just a any typical night i probably wouldn't have went out but you know because i haven't been able to look at mars for a while and uh, because i wanted to test this tmb barlow um i went out and and i guess maybe the lesson learned is even if there's a little bit of cloud in the sky and you know it was one of those nights where you could see the moon and, and it was kind of hazy because of all of the cloud um, mm. you can still get in some planetary observing or some lunar observing, um, as long as it's not too thick, you'll be able to, to have a decent session. Mm -hmm. So how about you, Chris, were you able to get any observing in? Yeah, I, uh, I had a couple nights. So on Thursday, I teach my astronomy classes, as you know, you <laughs> very obliging guest lecturer. Now. Um, and, uh, about halfway through, like it was very cloudy that night. 
and then about halfway through, um, we typically take a short break, and uh, and it had cleared off. So when I when I, I I jumped back in and said, "Hey, everybody, go look at the moon and, and Mars," because it was sort of clear over our city, I kind of forgotten that I have probably about a third of the class is is not in Regina, or maybe I just didn't know that. And uh, and so most of the class actually went out and took a look at at the moon and Mars when they were only uh, I think they were about four degrees apart. Mm, yeah, yeah quite close yeah so i looked at it with binoculars that was kind of cool and uh last sunday i was able to get in about four hours on mars and made a quite a, quite a few sketches i think i did six sketches and uh so I, I was interested you were talking about the bosporus planum um and solace planum so i i always think of that as like the solace lacus area i think those planums are actually the the surface features and so uh, anyway, I did uh, quite a few sketches of, of that Solus Lacus. And that, that dark area on the top, if you, were, if you were looking at sort of a dark band on the top of uh, you know, Solus Planum or, or Solus Lacus uh, is, uh, is part of the Mariner Valley. You're just, it's just sort of blending in with some of the other features to give you sort of a bit of a darker stripe there or maybe a gap. And, and that's where the Mariner Valley is. Hmm. Yeah, I, I was not able to see the Mariner Valley. Uh, I like I, I think there was enough cloud in the sky that, mm. you know, the best I could do on Mars was just some subtle color differences. But to actually start to pull out some of that finer contrast, I, I just don't think it was possible. At yeah. least with my little telescope. Yeah, I'm not sure you can see the uh, Mariner Valley uh, directly, but uh, but part of that the feature that you're seeing. Uh, as as in the Solus Lacus area, on the, if it's northerly bound, like if you get dark on the sort of on the northern side of it, um, part of that mm. is the Mariner Valley. But I, I don't know that you can actually really see it directly. Maybe if you had a had a pretty good telescope that's very large on a really clear night high up uh, on a mountain somewhere, you might might be able to see something of it. But uh, anyway, that that's sort of part of that feature. So yeah, kind of kind of neat. Very neat. You know, Mar Mariner Valley is, is one of those like extraordinary solar system features, you know, like we, we're very familiar with our Grand Canyon and how large it is, but Mariner Valley really makes the Grand Canyon look like a, just a small little depression. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I believe it's about the size of the continental U S. Oh, wow. That, I think so. Or, or something that is of, huge. of that scale, but the same size, it would, it would like basically, I think just about wrap uh, or go cut, not wrap around Mercury, but go straight across. I think Mercury is about the same, uh, the same diameter as the Mariner Valley is long, or or something to that effect. So anyway, it's it's getting close. It's very long. Like if you think about even the Solus Lacus region, like that's uh, something like I don't know, getting close to a fifth or a quarter the size of of the disk of Mars. You know, big. Yeah, yeah, absolutely huge. Really big. Cool. I was out this morning. Took a look at the took a look at the moon. Uh, just naked eye. I, I thought about setting up, but uh, as I was saying, I've been uh, having a little back trouble and decided not to. And then I did go out for a walk and uh, the conditions weren't that great. It was kind of hazy. You can see Mercury, uh, not Mercury, but Venus up there. I got Mercury on the mind because uh, we're going to do an episode on that shortly. Um, yeah, I could see Venus up nice and high, but there was like thin cloud around. It was kind of moving around. So uh, not the best, but uh Anyway, sounds like uh, you've been getting some and answering questions from our listeners. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's been really good. We've received a, a whole bunch of questions over the last month or so. Um, so again, I, you know, I've tried to reply or I think I have replied to just about all of them and uh, also recorded them because I think that they make for really good discussion items. Uh, so I think everybody would enjoy hearing some of this stuff. Um, and I also would like to get your opinion on some of these yeah. things too, because when I respond to a question, it's really just my opinion. And there's usually more than one answer to a lot of these questions. Um, yep. but you know, Chris, before we get rolling, um, I would like to maybe issue an apology to our listeners for, uh -oh. um, a recommendation on our lunar episode. Um, you know, at the end of the episode, we talked about, um, some books that we would recommend. And I mentioned the Cambridge photographic moon Atlas mm -hmm. and uh, you know, we both talked about it. We both love it. We both think it's awesome. Uh, what I didn't realize though, um, until one of our listeners was tweeting about it. Um, I didn't realize that 
this book is no longer being printed and is exceptionally expensive. <laughs> so, oh, really? What so does it's it go kind for? of a poor, yeah. well, so on Amazon, uh, $345 Canadian dollars is the starting price. And, um, you know, if you want it like in brand new condition, it's like over $600, um, well, the, which the, is, could sorry? still be a good recommendation for some. <laughs> Well, I suppose clearly, if you you have an unlimited amount of money, yeah, it it always it always seems like there's one lunar atlas or another that that is fetching ridiculous prices at at any given time. Like I remember for a long time it was uh, uh, Ruckel's atlas, and now now you can get the Ruckel's atlas for forty or fifty bucks, and uh, and that certainly is is a good recommendation. It came back into print suddenly, you know, everybody. Uh, is selling their old copy and getting a new copy. And then, you know, uh, it's just not, I, I haven't seen Ruckel's going for those, those untold prices uh, recently. So maybe that's a good one for, for people to get. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it seems I, I thought I would, available. Yeah. yeah. I thought I'd bring that up just for that reason to suggest maybe a different book, but also yeah. um, if you are interested in astronomy books, um, understand that the the market is kind of small so they usually don't actually print a lot of these books and then when they disappear and they're no longer available the used prices sometimes can just skyrocket and make these things unaffordable so if you're ever considering the purchase of an astronomy book and it's in print it's probably good to just buy it and uh you know maybe save yourself a whole bunch of money if you decide later on that you want it and you know, you have to pay these uh, kind of ridiculous prices for an out-of-print book. Yeah, and then and then again, often if they are that popular, the publisher will bring them back, back in and and uh, and print them off. And what's really strange, though, sort of, I guess this is a positive, is like for example, I remember Ruckel's, um, and I don't I don't know if they've done another printing or like a third printing now or what, but uh, I I've seen them and they haven't been fetching those crazy high prices. Um, I think they've been in the fifty dollars uh, American. I think it was selling new for fifty nine American, so that's not too bad. I think it's definitely worth sixty dollars American. Um, but uh, yeah, it, you know, when when it was out of print, uh, two fifty would we, would fetch you a pretty dog eared copy. And uh, like you were saying uh, with, with the other atlas, you'd be into several hundred dollars more to get a pristine copy. But then when they when they reissued it, I thought, well they should just sell it for like a hundred bucks a copy and, and make some, some decent money off it. And, and, you know, then, uh, you know, you're, you're not, uh, back into that same situation, um, or, or print a lot more copies of it or, or what, I don't know, but, but no, they released it again, $59. And I'm like, what are they doing? Like, it seems very strange to me. You had this, you had this pent up demand, a limited supply, you know, which, which usually increases the price of stuff. And then, and then it doesn't. So kind of makes people who, who paid those uh, really high used prices feel a little bit hard done by uh, perhaps, but, uh, but anyway, um, that's the way it goes. And uh, it's just one of those strange things with amateur astronomy. The, the books can get extremely, extremely expensive. Um, I am a bit of a book collector. I forget the term that for that, it's not really a hobby. It's a hobby within my hobby of astronomy. But I've got lots of astronomy books, Shane. Oh, I know. Yeah, you've got a quite a nice library. Yeah, and I've been very fortunate because, well, I've been doing it for a long time, and I, I, I don't tend to buy as much used astronomy equipment. In fact, I don't buy all that much astronomy equipment. This year is totally an anomaly. I hadn't bought a piece of astronomy equipment hardly at all, maybe in other than the little 80 millimeter that I got for hundred bucks last year, I hadn't bought anything in maybe six or seven years. And, uh, and then because of Mars, I wanted to, wanted to kind of ramp up for Mars observing, but, uh, but with the books, I'm always watching the used market. And, and when books are coming up that I, that have on my watch list, I'll, I'll pick them up. And the other thing is, is that uh, I've been very fortunate to live, uh, you know, on my, my walks in Ontario, where, where I used to live, I, I worked in a, in a small downtown metropolitan area and uh, had three great bookstores on my lunchtime walking route. And in the winter, when it was super cold and windy, I would go into these places to warm up and, and just very quickly spend five minutes scarring each of their shelves every day. And uh, I was buying books on, on a monthly basis when I lived there. So 
really worked out well. So we got yeah. some questions. We have some questions. So yeah. yeah. Do you want to start with the first one? Sure. So first question is, um, if you plan to go observing and you load up your car and off you go, and maybe it's a camping voyage, but the point is here, you're making some considerable effort to get to this destination. What can you observe if you get there and it's either cloudy or maybe smoky skies? And, you know, this Wait, year... smoky be... eyes? <laughs> smoky. Oh, no, no, smoky. <laughs> yes, like, you know, every summer with wildfires and forest fires and all of, you know, these kind of, you know, fires that occur, um, at least here in North America, we seem to have periods every summer where we get some smoky skies. So, Chris... Can you observe? And if you can, what would you observe under those types of conditions? You can, um, but you're really just going to be looking at planets or the moon or something like that. And, you know, um, I suppose during the day, if you have the proper um, telescope, you can do some solar observing. Um, you know, one, one of the things that we've done is really focus on our public outreach and education when we're in those situations, because uh, sometimes you're, you're only going to be able to see a fraction of the stars, which are otherwise visible. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have people out and unfortunately we can't show them galaxies or nebula or anything because often it's been that smoky. And so we just kind of try to teach people a little bit about the stars or whatever. But yeah, it can be super impactful on, on very frustrating on the astronomy and the very impactful on the environment and individuals as well, unfortunately. Um, but uh, when, when we are having bad weather, I, I guess the you know, I made up a few notes on this, um, uh, whether it's poor skies uh, because of smoke or, or other bad weather, um, is to kind of ramp up a bit. So I, I heard from a friend recently, I've been, been doing some other uh, astronomy stuff uh, on Zoom, uh, and, and my friend uh, wanted a new telescope for Mars, just like you and I uh, had gone through this year, but they waited until, um, you know, August or so to kind of, you know, get themselves organized for this. And unfortunately, by that point, like a lot of the telescopes are, are sold out or, or back ordered or whatever. So then they're, they're now forced to, to wait. I think their telescope is supposed to come in the week after next, you know, more than a month past opposition. Um, so that's kind of disappointing uh, for that, that individual. And, and I know they're, they're busy and their, uh, their situation is such that, uh, it is difficult for them to observe uh, from the location. But uh, that is one thing that I do try to do a little bit more is kind of plan like where are things going to be in the sky, what's coming up over the next several months or the next year that I'm going to want to observe uh, and create my observing plans because uh, the sky does clear eventually. And then, you know, I've run into situations and, and I know you have as well where, you know, we're here in winter and it can get, you know, cold for a good long time. And sometimes super icy on top of that. We've had minus 40 for weeks, sometimes a couple months on end, where the highways are all covered in ice. So you're not, you're not going out anywhere anyway, let alone going driving around trying to go observing because it's just way too dangerous. Um, and then suddenly it clears up one day, warms up, the ice melts, and here we are, it's maybe minus five or something. And you know, the observing sites are cleared out, and you're like, what am I going to look like? I don't even know what's up in the sky, you know, and it turns out, Oh, Saturn was up in the morning sky and I really should be getting up and, and observing that or, you know, um, you know, that this galaxy or that uh, nebula that I've wanted to observe for a long time is well-placed uh, and it had been, you know, poor, uh, you know, for the past couple of years at that time, boy, that, that would have been a good opportunity to go uh, and observe that. So that's kind of my advice is to, uh, just try to make the most of it, but then also uh, use it as like a bit of a planning session. And we'll even do that when we're down in the grasslands. If we do have uh, poor conditions, we'll sit around and, and look at the star charts and, and kind of kind of talk about, uh, you know, what our plans are uh, once things do, uh, do clear out. Yep. Yeah, yeah, good advice. Um, you know, another thing that you and I do is, is we have... Um what would you say? Probably three or four solid observing locations where we can go. And yeah. they're all like quite a ways apart from each other. And one of the reasons we have these areas is in case the weather isn't so good in one spot, 
we can just turn right on the highway instead of left, for example, yeah. and, and go to another place and, you know, pitch our tents or do whatever we're going to do and get our yeah. observing in. So yeah. I think, you know, being a little bit like water um, and, you know, be able to be fluid with the situation is, is kind of a benefit here. And yeah. I think one of the best resources there's um, like for monitoring forecasts for the sky is the uh, clear sky charts um, and yep. or there's the uh, app and I think they have a website too. It's Astrophoric, which is yep. getting a lot of uh, attention in the various astronomy magazines lately. Um, yep. Both of them are awesome. You can put in whatever location you want. Um, well, the clear sky chart, they have a list, so you pick. But anyway, it'll tell you uh, the forecast for, you know, seeing, transparency, darkness, cloud cover. And I think actually clear sky charts did add like a smoke uh, yeah, they have. Yep. forecast thing to theirs. So, yep. so that's really handy too. You know, then you can see what, what you'll likely run into. Now, just like a weather forecast, um, the sky forecast is never 100% accurate but it's usually pretty close. So yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Sure. So that's another one. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we are lucky here in that we can uh, drive to different spots, like for sure. Um, you know, if we're, we're sort of free and clear of other obligations, um, definitely we can head two or 300 kilometers one way or another, which, which would in essence place us maybe six or 700 kilometers from the, uh, the original final destination. Um, you know, where I'm from in Nova Scotia, that's going to get you pretty wet. So <laughs> we are lucky here to be able, be able to do that or, or not bounded by, uh, you know, s- some individuals maybe, uh, uh in, in regions where they just can't cross a border as easily. Whereas here, like, especially like even during, uh, or not during COVID, um, you know, I mean, theoretically, we haven't really done it that much. We plan to is is to uh, cross the border, and I mean, there's you know, we have you know, really nice open borders with uh, with our good friends in the in the United States to our south, and uh, it's really easy for us to uh, to traverse that border under under uh, you know normal times, and uh, you know, you can drive a long way down there and uh, get into slightly different different conditions uh, than what we have here as well. So, yeah, we are lucky in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Chris, next one. This one, I think, is an outstanding question. Yeah. Because um, I think we've all been here uh, probably early on. Like anybody who's had an interest in astronomy and goes down the path of purchasing their first telescope has probably looked for the answer to this question. So can you recommend or pick a telescope that can give us you know, high contrast, um, high magnification, uh, on a stable mount, because, you know, that's something too, that uh, I think is a really important point here. Um, a lot of entry-level telescopes or people new to astronomy, I know I didn't consider this, uh, is, the import- oops, is the importance of a, having a real stable mount for your telescope. Because if, if you have um, the best optics in the world, but it's on a, a crappy mount that's full of vibrations, you won't be able to do any observing. So anyway, back to the question, high contrast, high magnification, stable mount, and the kicker costs under $200 Canadian. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think this is a, this is a tall order. Um, Unfortunately, I, I really like something that you can just go and we can send you a link to, and you can go and buy that. I don't think it, it actually exists in the, in the natural world. Unfortunately, I think you, and you, you may have a different answer, Shane, but I really think you're, you're getting into something like four to $500 um, to really get something that, that really meets in the, in the truest sense of the word, uh, a high contrast, high mag, uh, stable mount. Um, now, with sort of two caveats, one is going with, uh, with binoculars. I think you can get lots of binoculars that are under $200, but of course, uh, we're recommending like eight power binoculars, uh, eight by forties. And, uh, you know, uh, th- those are low mag- magnification might be high contrast and, uh, pretty easy to stabilize on, on an inexpensive tripod. In fact, you really don't need a tripod at all with an eight power binocular. The other thing I would recommend is maybe something like an ST80 type telescope on a good camera tripod. But, but that comes with the, uh, maybe the added challenge of trying to uh, pick out some of the, the other pieces yourself, because uh, typically these ST80s, 
uh, don't come with uh, tripods that are that are good enough even for these instruments. These instruments are 80 millimeter F5 Acromats, and I think just about everybody makes one. Uh, I really like the uh, Skywatcher one. I I've recently got one of those and was testing it. It's really great. I was able to get mine even for $30 and I thought I'd fix it up and send it to my nephew, but um, just figuring out a, a really good uh, tripod to go with it and a mount um, definitely gets up in, into the price of, uh, of an entry level telescope. And unfortunately, uh, even though I already own that telescope, so um, really even just get an ST80 and then properly mount it, you're probably, you're probably going to be at $200 minimum. Uh, and then you're going to want to get some decent eyepieces. And that telescope isn't a high power telescope, really maxes out at 80 or 90 power. So, um, yeah, I don't really have a really good answer for that one. Unfortunately, I'm really interested to hear what your, uh, what your suggestion is for a high contrast, high magnification, uh, low cost telescope that's on a stable mount. I would say you could probably pick one of those for $200. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It, it's like that, that old, I think it's like a project management proverb. Do you want this or pick any two of the three and it's, you know, fast, cheap, fast. Yeah. Yeah. Good quality, something like that. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. I, I do agree with you. Like if you're going brand new, this is a, a tall order, maybe an impossible order, but if you get creative, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that you can do quite a bit. Well, I shouldn't say quite a bit. I think that you can solve this one uh, with some creativity. Um, so I got three points to make here. Number one is, um, you know, I think you you have to start probably in the used market um, for a lower price. If you can find some used gear, you're usually getting it probably at about half the cost of brand new stuff. So um, where I would start with this is, is can you get a telescope for $200 Canadian? Um, and I think you can get decent Acromac acromatic uh, telescopes for under $200 that have, you know, a good focuser, um, you know, decent optics. Now, what I would do with the mount aspect of this, and I'm kind of cheating a little bit here, um, but I would probably build my own mount. Um, if you look, uh, like if you just do an internet search on do-it-yourself telescope mounts, uh, like alt-as mounts, there's a lot of different designs out there. Uh, one of the popular ones is a pipe mount, and it just uses like some plumbing fitting supplies that you can buy at your local hardware store and put together a, a very functional mount that that is quite stable. Um, and if you have some of these, you know, supplies in your garage, uh, you know, some spare wood and things like that, you might be able to cobble together a mount uh, for not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, so those are sort of two separate points, uh, you know, used, uh, think about do it yourself type of solutions. Uh, and then the last thing that I'll, I'll mention about this, um, and this is going back to the start of our podcast, Chris, uh, the, the reboot podcast, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, is when I talked about classic telescopes. Um, those telescopes made in like the 60s uh, that, were, that have the Royal Astro Optics maker's mark on them, those yep. are really, really good telescopes, optically, mechanically, and even the mounts are quite stable. Um, one of the more common ones out there is the Tasco 7TE5. Um, if you can find one of these where the optics are still in good condition, um, which is key because on a telescope that old, the optics, you know, might be scratched or have fungus or mold growing in them. But if you can find one that's in good shape, um, and they're, again, they're not that uncommon. Yep. You can get all of that for right around $200 Canadian. Um, yeah. sometimes less. Um, I sold one for, I think a hundred or $150 Canadian. Um, and, and it's a, it's a great telescope. So, um, I think you can do it. Um, but it, it certainly wouldn't be as easy as going no. to a website, clicking no. buy now and, have and that's it what shipped. people are, are yeah. more or less looking for these days. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, and, and I don't disagree with your comment. You know, I think about my, my uh, conversation, I think last month or the month before with uh, Nicole Laporte, uh, who's a well-known artist in, in Quebec. And, um, and she's also an amateur astronomer, it turns out, which I, which I didn't know. I, I'm on a, on an astronomy list with her and she suddenly posted and I was like, whoa. And she sent an image of, of Mars that, that was, you know, really amazing. Uh, and that was $140 uh, Canadian, telescope and it was a tasco i forget what is 60 millimeter f13 
uh, with really nice optics. But, but what she had done is uh, really two or three things. Um, she took the telescope off its, its original mount and went and went around to uh, like some, um, I guess they were like yard sales or that sort of thing, I think. And she found uh, a wooden tripod from like a more vintage telescope like you were talking about. And she uh, was able to uh, get, get her telescope mounted to that somehow. She's clearly more adept at the uh, mechanical arts than I am because I'd be like, I don't know how to do that, but she figured it out. And then she made like a really nice eyepiece tray for it. And then the other thing she did is she converted it to one and a quarter inch eyepiece. I think it was uh, 0.96, but it, but it would take one and a quarters. Um, so she got a different diagonal. And then she bought um, like a really inexpensive, but decent set of eyepieces. But in the end, I, I, I guesstimated she was probably, well, shipping included was 160 in taxes. Another, you know, so she was about 180 for the telescope all in and then 120 for the eyepieces. So she's at like 300 and then whatever she ended up paying, you know, she, she probably was in close to 350 uh, once everything was factored in um, and she sort of had it done. Now, you know, she, she did put a piece of artwork in, which is that she, she made her eyepiece tray, which I think this is, this is amazing. I've never seen this done before is the moon. And so, yeah. uh, and so now her probably $300 investment is, is probably worth maybe several thousand dollars because she actually turned it into like a little bit of a, a working piece of art, right? Sort of, uh, you know, almost, almost in, in line with what some of the uh, very early telescope makers were doing. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I, I think I shared that photo with you or maybe I didn't, but uh, yeah, you did. Yeah, it was awesome. it's just such a beautiful little telescope that you're just like, how can that be? Uh, but anyway. Um, she definitely is a, a very skilled, skilled person. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it depends. People out there may have different levels of skill and, uh, and mechanical abilities. Um, certainly people have come to my class and done things that, you know, were really surprising to me. Um, everybody kind of comes to this with their own unique uh, background and experiences. So uh, yeah, so somebody who, who looks up a pipe mount may be like, that's nothing and knock that out in an afternoon. Whereas you know, I, I would still be in the plumbing section of, of home hardware trying to, <laughs> trying to figure out which pieces go together after six months. Right. Like that wouldn't, that wouldn't work well for me, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. to each, to each their own. So maybe I'll ask the next question. That's okay. Yeah. All right. What is the best way? Cause I think this actually came from, from, uh, one of my students, uh, what is the best way to deal with condensation when going from cold to warm temperatures and I believe that individual asked if like wrapping telescopes and optics in towels was a good idea. Mm -hmm. So, you know, great question for this time of the year, especially where we live. Um, if you take a telescope out and uh, let it cool down, when you bring it into a warm house, it can really collect condensation quickly. And condensation on optics is not a good thing. You want to avoid that. Yeah. So um, there's a few ways to deal with this. Um, number one is some people just store their telescopes in a garage. So if your garage is unheated, um, the telescope will sort of come up a bit in temperature, but it will come up slowly and you'll avoid the whole condensation issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an option. Um, myself, I like to bring my telescope uh, indoors. So what I usually do is um, I take a blanket out with me and I just leave it in on a chair outside beside me during the entire observing session. Um, so the blanket itself cools down. And then when I'm done um, and I'm you know going to take everything in for the evening, I do wrap the telescope in this blanket and then just set it on the couch. And then in the morning I put the caps on and, and I'm done. You come so, down, your, your dog's like snuggling with it. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the blanket, what it does is it really allows that telescope to come up to temperature slowly, yeah. which avoids the condensation. And, yeah. you know, one of the key, like, I don't know if this is key, but I like to do it. And I've read this is a good practice is to leave your, uh, your optic caps off of the telescope until it has come up to temperature. Uh, because what can happen is, um, you know, that moisture will still collect under the cap. And if it's not allowed to dry, um, you can run into like kind of a mold mildew situation on your optics. Mm -hmm. um, so if you wrap it all in a blanket, you'll keep the dust off of it and then also allow it to just, you know, slowly warm up. And if any condensation forms, 
uh, you know, it'll sort of naturally dry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's good advice. Um, mine, I, and I won't go against that advice. I think that that is really excellent advice. Um, the way that I typically do it is I have cold storage. So here, here at my home. And so, uh, I have like locked cold storage and I just keep my, my scope there, um, for a while. Um, depending like on, on what's happening. If, if we're, if I'm doing other types of observing where I'm not as concerned about the telescope heating up and cooling down, uh, this, this probably encompasses just, uh, maybe 70% of my observing. Um, I have uh, pretty heavy insulated foam line cases. And so what I do is, uh, we're out observing and I have the case out. I leave the case open. It's in the car, but you know, when it's minus whatever out here, the car gets pretty darn cold. Um, and then, uh, typically what I do is just, uh, have, have that open in the car. And as I'm packing up, I uh, drop the telescope back in there, seal it up. And so it's, it's covered. I think it kind of does a very similar thing to the blanket. And, uh, certainly I've never had any, any problem with, uh, with that. Cause it's pretty, pretty much, uh, contained in there. Um, I do put the caps on here in here in Saskatchewan, it's dry enough that there might be the odd night. It could get frosty, but things just don't get that frosty here. Um, so I don't, I honestly, I don't worry about it as much here as, as back home in Nova Scotia, where it's just such an absolute nightmare. Um, <laughs> because it does, I, I, I think it was in my class this week. I was telling people like I was home, um, two summers ago, and it was going to be clear. And I was, I was like, okay, I'm going to go observing. And I went and walked across our backyard and the sun had not set. It had set from this location. Um, but it was still up in the sky. I could kind of sort of see it poking through the trees. And, uh, it was still maybe an hour, hour and a half away from true sunset. And, uh, and I walked across the lawn and, and my feet got so wet from the dew already before the sun had even set that I had like, I had to go change my socks. Like, and I'm not exaggerating. Like I was soaked, like no exaggeration. Like my feet were absolutely soaked. I could not, uh, I couldn't get over it. And I always forget, like, you know, I go back and I'm like, how can this be? You know, and I go observing with my friends and uh, back there. And often, you know, we get, we get dude out before, before anything, it's almost like a rain. And, you know, what, what I would do back there and in Ontario as well, Ontario wasn't quite as, uh, as Dewey is I would take a t-shirt and I would put my refractor through the t-shirt. And then um, if I pulled back to chat with somebody or look up a star chart or take a break, then I would pull the, the t-shirt over the objective end and, and the eyepiece end. Um, and then, uh, you know, it would sort of prevent it from uh, going through the dew point and collecting as, as much dew. And then like, like you were saying, like, being careful about wrapping it in a towel and bringing it in. It was, it was always a pretty big uh, production here. It's, I just don't find it, you know, as, as bad. And like the house is so dry, like here, you know, my house is running at like 28% humidity these days. And, and you bring it in, I might get some moisture, but it's going to just, it's just going to come right off. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I think it's, you got to be careful, but it depends on where you are. If people are in more humid environments, yeah, you really have to figure this out. If you're in really dry or drier environments like we are, um, honestly, you know, although like I know Shane, like you're looking at it going, whoa, there's a lot of dew on my scope. And I'm like, you don't know what dew is, Shane. <laughs> like you just, <laughs> you have no idea, right? You don't even own a dew cap for your telescope, right? So um, yeah. <laughs> just no, all, all good advice. Uh, yeah. I like it. All right, yeah. Chris, next question sort of ties back a little bit to the high contrast, high magnification, magnification, stable mount question. If you want high contrast and high magnification, your telescope needs to have optics that are cooled, you know, relatively close to the outside air. So yeah. how long does it take to cool your optics? If you're planning to, to go out and observe, how early should you take your telescope out before you're going to do your observing? Well, like, so if someone's observing planets and they want high power, I think they should be cooling their, their scope. They should be keeping it somewhere that's, that's cool, uh, cooler than, you know, as cool or cooler than what it is outside. Like for example, in, in the summer, my, my inside house, I don't have air conditioning, but I, we do what we can to keep it cool. Um, you know, is probably running in, in the low twenties, maybe, uh, as warm as 23 or 24 degrees in my house even, but it might be 40 degrees Celsius outside. Um, 
And then by the time, uh, you know, it, it gets to sunset, it might be uh, 25 or 26. And then, uh, you know, an hour after sunset, it's going to be about the same as, as inside at that point, you know, put the telescope out and, and uh, you're really ready to roll. Like it's not really going to, going to be, uh, be that much of adjustment. Uh, these mornings, you know, like this morning I was out, it was minus 10. I, I didn't take the telescope out, but that would be over or close to a 30 degree uh, difference. Um, so in that case though, I'm keeping my telescope in cold storage. So my telescope's probably at maybe one or two degrees and it's minus 10 out. Uh, so it's only going to come down, uh, 12 degrees. Um, and you know, I really think that it, it doesn't take as long to go from 12 degrees as, as it would to, uh, to come down from, from 25 degrees, say it was 25 or 30 degree difference. So it's just, just not as much of a difference. Um, so I always like to factor for a refractor about one minute per degree of Celsius um, from where you're storing it. And, uh, and again, like I think that it's wise uh, if you are having colder temperatures to, uh, to try to keep it somewhere that's a little cooler, even a little cooler in the house. Like for example, sometimes I'll store it near the back door where, you know, there's, there's maybe an outside wall and, and, uh, and a wall against the garage, um, stand something up in that corner might be two or three or four degrees cooler than, um, you know, like, you know, somewhere else. And certainly if, if you're storing your stuff where, where it's heated, sometimes there's even heat. Now I noticed in one of my closets, there's a couple of heat vents in a larger closet. So if you're storing something in there, it might, might even get seven or eight degrees warmer than, than some of the other parts of the house. So I, I think you can kind of make those kind of uh, choices as well. But if you're using a, a reflector, or, uh, or a compound telescope, you know, you're going to have to double it, I think, for a reflector. So two minutes per degree of Celsius. And then for a compound, like a closed tube telescope with a lens in the front and a mirror in the back, um, I think you're going to have to double it still or quadruple that, uh, that first number, probably go with four minutes uh, per degree Celsius. And uh, you're really going to have your work, work cut out for you with the, with the compound cooling. What are, what are your thoughts on the shank? Yeah, no, all, all good advice. I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I, I sort of simplify it a little bit in my mind when, so my, my approach is if you have a refractor and it's a doublet, um, and it's probably under five inches, 30 minutes, you know, is kind of the rough time. Um, if you're using compounds, uh, triplets or reflectors, you know, probably plan on an hour, maybe even more. Yeah. Um, and there are little things you can do, like for your Smith Casa grains or compounds, you can get these tubes that you stick in, uh, like the, uh, the visual back and there's a little yeah. fan that blows air in to help cool it off. Uh, reflectors can get fans for the back of the primaries that help to uh, expedite the cooling. Um, but you know, the, the challenge that I find with those types of telescopes is they're always playing catch up. Because yeah. usually, you know, the evening air continues to cool until probably about three or four in the morning, maybe even five or yep. six some days. So it's always chasing that acclimate or trying to acclimate itself to that air. Um, and yeah. And I think I got to jump in and say just sort of one quick thing, though. And that yeah. is that is this. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. Uh, so don't think that. Um, but, uh, you know, what I've referenced, one of the benefits here is that we have very dry conditions. And, and that, and let me tell you, that is a huge benefit. Love it that it's dry. Um, it makes the observing sessions a, a million times more pleasant, um, even though uh, our temperature does drop. And that is sort of uh, the one thing that we are challenged with here is that I think we have the highest diurnal or the highest difference between daytime high and nighttime low uh, of just about anywhere in North America. Um, I've been out at uh, 46 degrees Celsius above zero and I finished the night with frost on my telescope. Um, and, and that is, uh, you know, somewhere around maybe even a 46 uh, or, or maybe even close to a 50 degree temperature change. And pretty typical in the summer, having a 20 or 25 degree temperature difference is, is nothing. That's pretty average here in, here in Saskatchewan. Um, in Ontario, though, um, boy, like sunset, it might be 28 degrees. Sunrise might be 21. So not really that much of a difference. And I had a compound telescope there, had air conditioning in my apartment, kept it at about 24 in the apartment. And, uh, you know, I'd take it out, go observing and having compound telescope there no problem right here you got a bit of work cut out for you so it, again it's going to depend on where people are 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, you know, Chris, I think we're getting to that point in the episode where we usually wrap things up. So I think we'll take one more question. Uh, we certainly have a lot more to go through. So, you know, maybe we do another mailbag episode here real soon. Okay. Um, but let's wrap it up with this one here. Um, cleaning optics, you know, do you clean optics? How do you clean optics? When should you clean optics? Um, can you, can you shed some light per se on that? (laughs) Can I shed some light in your optics? Sure. (laughs) Um, I, I don't really clean them that much to be perfectly Mm -hmm. honest because, um, you know, I, I've just read so many horror stories and, uh, and also I, I don't think they need it as much as, as people think. Like, oftentimes people take like the bright flashlight and they point it at the optics and they see a little bit of dust or dirt or whatever. And it's like, holy cow, I got to get out the uh, soap and water kind of thing. Um, but, but those have a really minimal uh, impact on, uh, you know, on, on the observing. So I really don't clean. I, I probably clean them every four years or so. Um, I've read stories where some people clean them every month, you know, and I'm just like, Ooh, that sounds like a lot of work. And, you know, I think, I think when you do it sporadically um, and cautiously, you're very careful, but if you kind of start doing it too frequently, one, you can damage the optics. And I think eventually you're probably going to damage the optics if you're doing it like too frequently. Um, And two, I think it's unnecessary, you know, and I I like astronomy to be fun and easy. And I, I, you know, kind of look at cleaning optics uh, sort of, you know, I, I would rather do that after I do the toilets, like no kidding. Like that is like the last <laughs> thing I want to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very similar, Chris. Um, my, my approach to it is. Um, buy new eyepieces. Just, <laughs> no, just I'm just buy, kidding. <laughs> buy new gear. Yeah. No, no, no. That's not it. <laughs> no, I, I want, I kind of want the optics to tell me that they need to be cleaned by me looking and going, like just looking, like using the telescope, like I normally do and go, yeah. Whoa, what the heck? What, you know, something's not right here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because if you really do inspect the optics, um, you know, with a flashlight or all this other stuff, yeah, you'll probably see some dust and, and things like that. And to your point, like I, it really has to be clouded over. Like your optics really have to be a mess oh, to, to negatively yeah. to have a big negative impact on your observing. And I feel like there's far more risk of you damaging the optics by cleaning than just observing with the dust that's there. Particularly if you're touching yeah. a mirror. Um, I've, you know, I've scratched a mirror just by cleaning it. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it can happen. Yeah. So I try not and to you'll never get them. that scratch off. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. So, you, you know, you want to avoid that at all costs. Yeah. Um, the, the, probably what I do the most is I have one of those little, um, blowers. Well, it's like a little bulb, like, yeah, uh, you can buy them at yeah. a camera store. Yep. Uh, it's for blowing dust off of yep. camera lenses. Yep. That's um, good those are awesome, you know, and, and those use as often as you want. Never yeah. use compressed air in a can that you would use no, for a computer. No, those are really bad. That. That's bad. Um, yep. but yeah, those little bulb squeezy things, um, those are great. And you can, you know, blow dust off of an eyepiece quite easily, uh, with that. Yeah. Um, but really beyond that, yeah, I, I don't touch them unless they really, really need it. Um, and like I say, really, really needing it means I need to be able to see it while I'm observing. Yeah. And I, my number one lesson in this was, cause I always wondered this myself and I've been doing astronomy for a few years. Um, you know, and this is a number of years ago and, uh, there's, there's a sort of a well-known amateur astronomer out East named Dave Lane. And he's the uh, observatory director for the St. Mary's observatory, which I used to sleep three floors below, um, when I attended that university. And, um, I remember when I get into astronomy and, and joined the RASC and, uh, and he, he's just a tremendous person who very willingly will like lend you equipment, um, like really amazing equipment. One night he was going to bed early first night I ever met him. And he had a beautiful 18 inch, uh, telescope that he had built a Dobsonian. And I was like, Oh, you're going to bed, you know, kind of thing. And he's like, yeah, but you know what? Knock yourself out, man. And he said, just put the carver over when you're done. And, uh, you know, I was like amazed that this guy just let me go to town with his 18 inch telescope. Uh, uh, and then on another night, um, I was asking about his 35 millimeter pan optic and he let me borrow this eyepiece um, to like for a month or something. I forget, maybe not that long, but it was for a prolonged period of time. And, uh, and I remember getting it 
home and looking at it and it was so dirty. I couldn't believe it. Um, and I, so I didn't clean, I wouldn't clean someone else's eyepiece. And, uh, and I asked him about it. He said, yeah, but it doesn't matter that much. Like people just get too concerned about, about the cleaning of the eyepieces. So at that point, I just kind of stopped worrying about it as much. I'm like, if, if this guy's not worried about it and his eyepiece, I couldn't believe how dirty it was. I mean, he, he observed a lot in those days. And uh, I was just like, you know what? I'm just not going to worry about it. Like why bother worrying about it when here this, you know, really great amateur astronomer who's done all this amazing observing, you know, he, it's just not even on his radar, it seems. So uh, clearly there's, there's a lot more you can do to, uh, to improve your views beyond, uh, you know, sitting around like potentially damaging your, your equipment, right? Mm -hmm. if, if somebody wants to clean their optics, like you, you determine that it needs to be done. I don't think it's wise for you and I, Chris, to get into how you do it. What no, I would just recommend is go to like Televiews website or astrophysics, like go to one of the higher end astronomy websites out there and read their yeah. instructions for how you clean optics. Uh, Cause it really is yeah. a step-by-step -step thing and it is. you need the right equipment. Well, not the right equipment, but like, you know, distilled water and things like that. So you know, find a good reputable source. Don't just Google it or just don't YouTube it. Like I say, go to a, a like a, a reputable higher end uh, optical uh, company's website and, and see what they recommend. Oh, and we talked about him before, but, and I'm going to butcher his last name is Bill Pallioni. Um, mm, anyway, yeah. I know I'm saying that wrong, um, but he's the author of, uh, I think it's choosing and using telescopic eyepieces by, uh, oh, oh, it's in the, the uh, that series uh, the Patrick Moore series. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, I think in that book, I don't have that book, um, but he talks about this online, uh, how to clean the eye. He's got a particular technique that he uses. And he also uh, is on cloudy nights and, uh, and in many, many forums and many, many conversations, he's actually gone through what that process is. Uh, and there's like a little bit of a kit that you put together. It's not real expensive. This would be 50 or 60 bucks to put together, including like the alcohol and the wipes and the blower, like you said, and it's, it's a little bit of a process that he, you know, he details it very, very well. And it seems like a very good and safe process, um, which maybe I'll explore this winter. It's, it's been a number of years since I've cleaned any optics. So maybe we can try that one. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. We have more questions than we have time to answer. I don't know yeah. if that's good or bad. I think it's good. I think it's good. I like it. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Shane, how can people stay in touch with us? Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy. You can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. Or you can leave feedback on any of the podcasting apps and we'd be happy to respond. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Shane. Thank you, Chris. And thank you to everybody for listening.